Chapter Twenty of Gargoyles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Gargoyles by Ben Hecht. Chapter Twenty. The excitedly heralded vice investigation, which, after several thousand centuries of criminal neglect, was to take up the question of immorality, discover its causes, determine its remedies and put an end to this blot upon civilization, opened to a crowded house. The folding chairs introduced into the ballroom by the corps of janitors were occupied, but they were insufficient. The corps of janitors had underestimated the extent of the public enthusiasm. Men and women aflame with the ardor of crusade battled for place within hearing distance of the witnesses who were to recount, under careful examination, just why girls went wrong. The ballroom was capable of seating a thousand. Another thousand pried their ways through the doors, and stood six and seven deep against the ornamental walls. The somewhat mythical portraits of French noblemen, cupids, Watteau ladies of leisure, smiled urbanely out of the blue and white panels over their heads. The corridor outside the large room was thronged with still a third thousand pushing, prying, squeezing, and perspiring all in vain. The police had been summoned. The press in its first pen picture of the stirring scene drew a significant distinction. Those within the ballroom who had successfully stormed the doors and clawed their way into the weltering pulp of figures were identified as a distinguished audience of society women, welfare workers, civic leaders, and citizens come to lend their moral support to the great crusade. Those who had failed in their efforts to gain entrance, and who clung with patient heroism to the corridor, the lobby downstairs, and even the boiling pavements outside, were dismissed scornfully as a crowd of the morbidly curious hungry for the sensational details promised by the investigators. At ten o'clock the commission itself arrived. The perspiring police opened a passage through the throng, and the commission filed to its place at the table, waiting at the end of the room. Newspaper photographers immediately leaped into concerted action. The boom and smoke of flashlights arose. Delays and preliminaries followed. The room grew terrifically hot. Collars began to wilt, faces to turn red, feet to burn. But the delays continued. It was impossible to find out why there was delay. The crowd grew impatient. A racket of voices stuffed the room. Something had gone wrong. Why didn't they start? They weren't doing anything. What were they waiting for? The public was grumbling. As a matter of fact, the commissioners were playing for time. A species of stage fright had overcome them. Each of them had arrived filled with a sense of high purpose and benign power. They were men upon whom the burden of lifting an age-old blot from the face of civilization had fallen. They had felt no hesitancy in the matter. They were going to tackle the situation like Americans, red-blooded Americans, in whose heart burned the unfaltering light of idealism. 
there was going to be no shilly-shallying, no highfalutin theorizings. They were going to the bottom of this matter without fear or favor. They were going to find out just why girls went wrong, and, having found this out, they were going to remove the cause, or causes, if there were more than one, and thus put an end to immorality, at least in the great commonwealth of Illinois. They were ten undaunted crusaders, inspired with the unfaltering consciousness of their country's power and rectitude. In fact, it was not the Basine Commission which pushed through the throng, but the tradition of the United States, the revered memory of Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and Nathan Hale, the army that had never been licked, the government of the people, by the people, and for the people, that was better than any other government on the face of the earth. These walked behind the policemen through the throng. But there was a human undertone to this tradition about to grapple with the problem of vice. Like Basine, each of the nine had, at the beginning, felt a slight discomfort. Their own pasts, and even presents, had risen in their thoughts to deride them. They were, alas, not without sin themselves. The dramatic coincidence was even possible that one of the witnesses called might point to a commissioner as the author of her ruin. This, in an oblique way, disturbed them. It lay like an indigestible fear upon the stomach of incarnated tradition. But as the patriotic fervor mounted in them, they were able somewhat to master this selfish fear. Debating the matter vaguely in the silence of their own bedrooms, they had achieved an identical triumph. Yes, they were, after all, only men. They had sinned, were sinning regularly, in fact. But they would be fearless. They would strike out with no reserve, and if vice turned an accusing forefinger upon them, they would sacrifice themselves. The chances were, however, that this would not happen. They experienced the inner elation which comes with non-inconveniencing confession. Regardless of what they were in secret, they would be able to reveal themselves publicly as men sitting in judgment upon vice, as executioners of vice. In this manner their material lives became unimportant accidents. They were able, within two weeks, to enter the public concept of themselves. Their actual selves became, in their own eyes, inferior and irrelevant. They had achieved an idealization. There was also another change. Once established in their own eyes as virgins, like Basine, they were soon under the hypnosis of headlines. As they walked to the hotel this morning, they had entirely rid themselves of their normal individualities. They were no longer even ordinary virgins, embarked upon a vaguely scientific or social enterprise. They were, above that, the spokesmen of an aroused public, the dignified containers of the power of the people. None of the ten, with the exception of Basine, had given the actual work before him any thought. They had not prepared themselves for the task by study. All of them were serenely, in fact belligerently, ignorant of the scientific thought of the world on the subject. 
the involved disclosures of psychologists, philosophers, economists, and other specialists in race ethics were part of a childish abracadabra beneath their consideration, for they were the incarnated power of tradition and of public opinion, two grave forces which needed no guiding light from such sources. This power buoyed them and brought a stern light into their eyes. They believed in the people, and therefore in themselves as spokesmen. Ten shrewd, wire-pulling politicians, whose careers were identically darkened with chicanery and crude cynicism, they were able by the magic of faith to rise above themselves. They were able to feel the nobility of the phrases which they had so often utilized as cloaks for their private greeds and private spites. These were the phrases of democracy which proclaimed to an odd populace that it, the populace, was master, and that its will was a holy and unassailable force for progress and piety. As spokesmen of the people, these commissioners were concerned with furthering the great idealization of themselves which the people worshipped as their god. Reason was at war with this idealization. Reason was the species of morbid and inverted vanity which inspired man to disembowel himself as proof of his stupidity. It grappled with his illusions, crawled through his soul, hamstringing his complacency. It raised insidious voices around him, wooing him, to denude himself of hope, faith, and charity, in short, to become intolerable to himself. The commissioners, as spokesmen, turned their backs upon it. There was a happier outlet for the energies of man than the repudiation of himself as the glory of God. There was the unreasoning struggle for idealization, the miracle by which man, seizing hold of his bootstraps, hoisted himself into heaven. This struggle, arousing the guffaws and sneers of reason, was its own reward. It was the virtue that rewarded itself. The perspiring little scene in the hotel ballroom was a startling visualization of this happier struggle. Regardless of their sins, their greeds, hypocrisies, idiocies, the people desired to see themselves as incarnation of an ideal. This ideal had been carefully elaborated. Of late it had taken on a life of its own. It had grown like a fungus feeding upon itself. Man, staring at the heaven he had created, was becoming awed by its magnificence and extent. More than that, this heaven was threatening to escape him, to become incongruous by its very vastness. There was danger that his idealization, fattening upon a logic of its own, would become a bit too preposterous even for worship. Already this idealization proclaimed him as an apostle of virtue, as a moralist first and a biological product afterward as believing in the credo of right over might, in the equality of blacks, whites, poor and rich, as a sort of animated sermon from the triple pen of a martyr president, martyr husband, and martyr messiah. Lost in a difficult admiration of this heaven, 
the people struggled in the double task of keeping the idealization of themselves from becoming too preposterous and of persuasively identifying themselves with their image the result of this struggle was apparent in the puritanization of idea becoming popular in the country a spirit of martyrdom was prevalent men and women were enthusiastically martyring themselves passing laws and formulating conventions in opposition to their appetites and desires in an excited effort to overtake this idealization of themselves righteousness was becoming a panic the christ image of the crowd was slowly obliterating its reality his halo was running away with man overcome with the necessity of keeping pace with the artificial virtues he had created as his god he was converting himself to the best of his talents into an outwardly epicene eye-rolling symbol of purity there was this mirror alive with his own godlike image and he must now be careful not to give the lie to the idealization of himself created partly by him and partly by the activity of logic the members of the vice investigating commission entered the crowded room serene in the knowledge that reason was their enemy and that god that mysterious cross between public opinion and yesterday's errors would vouchsafe them the power and keenness to cope with the problem before them they were innocent of intelligence but they had faith in the principles of their country and the principles of their country were founded upon the great truth that what the people willed must come to pass today the people of the commonwealth of illinois willed that vice and immorality be abolished from their midst therefore it must come to pass that the ten citizens lowering themselves into the seats behind the table were ten irresistible instruments animated by the strength of public opinion for several minutes after they had seated themselves the commissioners remained staring with dignity at the throng a vague and pleasant delirium occupied their minds the vice investigating commission had assembled and the business of removing the blot from the face of civilization would begin at once the commissioners sat pompously inanimate waiting for it to begin the spectacle before them the thousands of eyes focused upon their little group at the long table slowly awakened an uncomfortable disillusion in the commissioners in fact a little panic swept their minds they had of course discussed the issues passed resolutions and laid plans for grappling with the situation but all these efforts had been part of the curious hypnosis which had overcome them the sense of their power hypnotized them into fancying that their star chamber babblings were in themselves thunderblots the sweeping promises the all-embracing statements and resolutions passed and issued for publication had filled them with an exalted sense of success they had entered the ballroom under the naive conviction that the whole business had been already successfully consummated they were taking their seats at the table not to launch upon a task but to receive the plaudits of the public for great work already accomplished in fact to reap rewards for the noble utterances attributed to them by the press 
but now with the pads of paper the sharpened pencils the business-like cuspidors at their feet the ominous waste-paper baskets under their hands the commissioners faced the ghastly fact that the blot was still on the face of civilization untouched by their thunderbolts and some millions of people whose delegates were staring at them were waiting excitedly for it to be removed it occurred as if for the first time to the commissioners that something would have to be done about it their expressions underwent a change a pensiveness crept into their heavy faces a bewilderment dulled the dignity of their stares the room was unbearably hot it was impossible to do any work in such a crowd one could hardly hear oneself think above the noise the commissioners frowned and whispered among themselves gradually a nervous jocularity came into their manner well here we are all set hmm i think we'd better call some witnesses that's right call some witnesses where's judge basine talking over there huh why don't he do something yes why didn't judge basine take charge of his flock it was his commission the papers all said it was the basine commission then why didn't he start something instead of gabbing around with reporters good god what a heat hasn't the management provided any fans where's a bellboy we'll send him after some fans think a dozen'll be enough nothing doing three or four dozen at least i'll wear out a dozen myself before this day's over believe me say ain't that right oh judge judge yes what is it senator what about the witnesses are we going to have any witnesses of course i'm just getting things ready that's right there's no rush open that window won't you jim god what a mob well we'd better do something don't you think leave it to basine got a knife harry this pencil's full of bum lead the whisperings and delays continued basine however began to recover himself the eager focused eyes of the room were slowly electrifying him his gestures were becoming more dignified his manner acquired a definiteness the eyes regarding him saw a man with sharp features and an imperious expression moving with what seemed significant deliberation examining papers studying papers opening papers extracting papers returning papers instinctively they felt that here centered in this cautiously dynamic figure was the celebrated vice investigation basine arose a gavel in his hand and pounded the table the noises subsided as if a presence were being expelled from the room the hush served to illumine the figure of basine the eyes waited his voice arose definite impelling fellow citizens the vice investigating commission appointed by the state of illinois to determine if possible the causes of immorality and to remove wherever possible such causes 
is now in session. The purposes of this commission need no further explanation. We are assembled here in the name of the people of this state to do all in our power to grapple with the problem of vice and its many auxiliary problems. This problem is today the outstanding menace to the welfare of our community. Its dangers touch us all. The immoral man and the immoral woman, the factors which contribute to their immorality, are our responsibility. This is no sentimental outburst, no vague uprising, but an organized official investigation with full powers to uncover facts. We are not here to dabble in theories, but to dabble with facts. And for that purpose, and that purpose only, we are assembled under the laws of our state and the constitution of our country. The first witness called will be Mr. Arthur Corr. Applause thundered. Bazine, flushed, sat down. The commissioners on each side of him breathed with relief something had been started to their intense surprise mr arthur core actually arose from one of the witness chairs and came forward mr core was head of the largest department store in the city bazine with an instinct in which he placed implicit reliance had summoned him first thus abandoning the plans the commission had decided upon in star chamber it had been decided upon to save up the big guns for a climax. Bazine's instinct warned him as he stood on his feet talking that a climax was necessary immediately, a gesture which would at once reveal the power and fearlessness of the commission. Mr. Corr was the medium for such a gesture. Venerated as one of the wealthiest men of the city, the head of its most widely advertised and magnificent retail establishment, to hail him before the commission and belabor him with queries would be to capture the confidence of the public forthwith. As Mr. Corr, accompanied by two lawyers and a secretary laden with ledgers, advanced toward the table, a sudden misgiving struck Bazine. How much would the newspapers dare print about Mr. Corr? particularly if the cross-examination placed him and his establishment in an unfavorable light. Mr. Corr meant upwards of three million dollars a year in advertising revenue. Perhaps he had made a mistake in calling him. The press would turn and fly from the commission as from a plague. There would be no headlines, and the public would fall away. Bazine stood up as Mr. Corr approached. He was a smartly dressed man with a cream-colored handkerchief protruding against a smoothly pressed blue coat. An affable, reserved face that reminded Bazine of Milton Ware and the Michigan Avenue Club. Poise, suavity, courtesy exuded from Mr. Corr. "'How do you do, Judge?' he said with a bow. "'And gentlemen of the Commission?' Bazine extended his hand and promptly regretted the action. He had caught the emotion of the crowd. He realized that his instinct had not betrayed him. Mr. Corr was one of the most venerated citizens in the community, venerated for his power, his success, and his aloofness from his venerators. 
the summoning of mr core to take his place and be cross-examined by the commission had sent a thrill through the crowd they felt the elation of a pack of beagle dogs with a magnificent stag brought to earth under their little jaws mr core was rich powerful brilliant but they the people were greater than he there he stood obedient to their delegated spokesman the fearless basine and gratitude filled them as they noted basine was a head taller than the great mr core and that the great basine was not at all confused by the presence of this famed personage basine as he felt the emotion of the crowd knew simultaneously that the newspapers caught between their two vital functions that of ensuring their revenue by respectful treatment of its source the advertising plutocracy and of ensuring their popularity by the fearless advocacy of any current crowd hysteria must follow the less dangerous course and the less dangerous course now as always was with the beagle dogs who had brought a stag to earth after the handshake basine looked severely about him he was pleased to observe that his colleagues were non-existent they sat coughing sharpening pencils and gazing with vacuous aplomb at objects about them he smiled with inward contempt little puppets under his hands and the crowd before him a smear of little puppets even the all-powerful newspapers even the mighty mr arthur core he could manipulate them because there was something in him that was not in other people a sense of drama perhaps but more than that an understanding a vision that enabled him to see clearly over the heads of people into the future he could tell in advance which way people were going to turn and he could hurry forward and be there waiting for them a leader waiting for them when they caught up a curious question slipped into his mind why am i like that and then another question why am i able to do things the questions pleased him and as he followed mr core into his chair he knew that the crowd had noticed that judge basine was a man unimpressed by the greatness of mr core that the eyes focused on him had thrilled with the knowledge that he basine was dressed as well as mr core and that his own dignity and sternness were more impressive than the poise of mr core the great mr core was second fiddle in the show basine was first fiddle and the crowd was thrilled by that because basine was their man their leader and mr core venerated to this moment was now their enemy basine was a man in whom the dignity of the people shone out more powerfully than the prestige of an enviable individual these things whirled through basine's thought as he turned to the witness mr stenographer he announced you will please make accurate transcription of all questions and answers that follow a naive pride filled the attentive commissioners the investigation was after all a success regardless of what happened the mere fact that arthur core was to be interrogated on the subject of immorality among working girls 
constituted an overwhelming success. The conviction which now delighted them was shared by the thousands in the room and by the newspaper men scribbling at an adjoining table. All present felt certain that so dramatic a situation as the cross-examination of Mr. Arthur Corr by the chairman of the Vice Investigating Commission was bound to result somehow in the instant removal of the blot from the face of civilization. Basine, clearing his throat, began the questioning. Your name? Arthur Corr. Your position? President of Corr Plain and Company. That is the retail merchandise establishment in this city? It is. A full five minutes was consumed in the exchange of profound introductions. This concluded, Mr. Corr was informed what the purposes of the Vice Investigation Commission were. The information failed to impress him. Whereupon he was informed that he, as an employer of thousands of girls, had been called to throw light on a vital question. First, what wages did his employees receive? Mr. Corr, raising his eyebrows and looking aggrieved, as if he had been asked a very crude and tactless question, replied that the average wage was ten dollars a week for the young women in his employ. Did he think a young woman could keep virtuous on ten dollars a week? Alas, he had never given that phase of the economic system any thought. But if his opinion as an individual was worth anything, he would offer the philosophical observation that wages had nothing to do with immorality. A cynical observation. The crowd frowned. It didn't, eh? Lot he knew about it. And on what did he base this cold-blooded point of view? Well, on nothing in particular except his common sense. Indeed, his common sense. Well, well. So he thought that a normal young woman could live on ten dollars a week, feed, clothe, and house herself on ten dollars a week, and never feel tempted to earn more money by sacrificing her virtue? Alas, he had not thought of it in that way. He had merely thought that good young women were good and bad young women were bad, and wages had nothing to do with it. It was human nature. What? human nature to be bad? Mr. Arthur Corr was inclined to a cynicism which, fortunately, the great minds of the nation did not share. Had he ever sought to determine how many good girls there were in his employ? No, but he presumed they were all good. If they weren't, he was sorry for them, but it was their own fault. Thus the seesaw continued, while the room grew hotter while people packed against each other listened with distended eyes and opened mouths. Thus the commissioners, recovering from their panic, began to frown with importances, and Basine, still following the instinct in him, the sense of contact he felt with the crowd and situation, played another trump card. The afternoon newspapers were blazoning the news of Mr. Arthur Corr, the morning papers would need an equally dramatic morsel. Basine adjourned the session to reconvene at three o'clock. The crowd remained. 
the heat increased. The session reconvened. It was businesslike now. It was running like a machine. No more delays and indecisions. Call Miss Winona Johnson. Basine sat amid heaps of documents, ledgers, and commissioners, in charge. It was he who asked the questions, whose face was the battlefront of the people versus vice. Your name? Winona Johnson. Your occupation? A pause. And then, in a lowered voice, a prostitute. What was that? from Mr. Stenographer. A prostitute, from Basine clearly and indignantly. Sensation. She was a prostitute, this yellow-haired, gaudy creature in the witness chair. She had her nerve. How long have you been a prostitute, Winona Johnson? Well, two years, I guess. She guessed, as if she didn't know. And before that, what were you? She was a clerk. Where were you employed as a clerk, Winona? Where? Oh, I worked for the Core Plane and Company. There it was, the sort of thing that made climaxes. A new lead for the morning papers, a new thrill for the tired breakfasters. Tells tragic story of moral downfall, and then in smaller headlines, Former State Street clerk uncovers snares, pitfalls of city, and then photographs, comparisons between Mr. Core's statements and Miss Johnson's statements. Mr. Core's picture and Miss Johnson's picture side by side, so that one might almost think, unless one read carefully, and who did that, that the venerated Mr. Arthur Core had been exposed by the all-powerful Basine Commission as the seducer of the pathetic Miss Winona Johnson. Through the weltering afternoon, the great investigation progressed, Basine, unaided, carrying the fight. A champion, an undaunted one, his voice growing hoarse, his eyes flashing tirelessly, his questions never failing, incisive, compelling questions that seemed for all the world as if they were slowly, tenaciously coming to grips with the devil. A great day for the Commonwealth of Illinois, a day surfeited with climaxes. Winona Johnson wept, and the courteous voice of Basine pressed for facts. Here was a mine of facts, here a witness who could reveal something, and she did. That will be all, thank you from Basine. Winona arose. Eyes devoured her. A terrible curiosity played over her face and body. Civilization had been stunned. Everyone knew, of course, that prostitutes sold themselves to men. But to so many? Horrible! A revelation to make thinking men think, thinking women, too. If there had been any doubt in the public mind concerning the sincerity of the commission, this day had removed it. Two welfare workers and a second department store owner concluded the bill. The newspapers spread the questions and answers through the city. A determined light came into the eyes of the millions who read. 
the commonwealth was at grips with evil facts had been exhumed in a single session that were intolerable to a civilized community a hue and cry would be raised things would be done the millions reading felt this something would have to be done resolutions would be passed thunderbolts would be hurled by civic bodies lodges clubs the thing called for action action and more action but wait and see what the morning papers would have to say there would be remedies in the morning papers Things would be done overnight by the morning papers to put an end to this iniquity, prostitution. And there could be no question but that underpaid workers were driven to lives of shame. And the dance halls, they hadn't gotten around to them yet. And factories and hotels. Wait till it came their turn. They would all be grilled, quizzed, flayed. Basine made his way slowly through the throng. Tomorrow's session would begin at eleven o'clock. He was tired. The work had exhausted him. But his head felt clear. Without raising his eyes, he understood the admiration of the crowds through which he was moving. They were repeating his name among themselves, saying, There he goes. That's him. He had understood things in this manner all day, without giving them words. He felt at peace. He had gone through a test. Now he knew he was a leader. The thing of which he had been afraid had turned out to be easy. He smiled, remembering his colleagues. Simple, blundering men who had floundered around trying to horn in. But this wasn't the private bank's crusade, not by a long shot. Ah, that was playing a long shot, calling core like that. But it had worked. Newsies were yelling around him. Extra, all about. About Basine, of course. About him. Yes, there was leadership in him. He was a man who could sweep people along with him. The crowds were going home. All these people belonged to him. Constituents. He smiled pleasantly at the hurrying figures. It was hot and they were perspiring. Their eyes were filmed with preoccupations. But what would happen if they were told suddenly that Judge Bazine was passing them, rubbing shoulders with them? Their eyes would brighten. They would forget about the things that were worrying them. They would look up and smile, perhaps cheer. Daydreams lifted his thought out of the present. This thing was only a beginning. He would go on. There was a kinship in him with people. The memory of the day lay like a love in his heart. He was still young, years ahead of him, and he would end where? High up. He looked around and noticed he was walking towards Doris's studio. Odd, he hadn't been aware where he was going. But he might as well. He frowned. She would ridicule what had happened. Well, that was all right. Her hatred of such things couldn't wipe out what was in his heart now. He became practical. Think of tomorrow's session. But why? 
the details were annoying. He had had enough details for one day. He would take care of things when the proper time came. This was a sort of reward to walk and dream. As for the blot on the face of civilization, yes, that would all be taken care of at the proper time. But the important thing, the most important thing, was Basine, high up. End of chapter 20 Recording by Roger Moline